You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn. Welcome to 2022 and The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit, business, and philanthropic world. Today, our guest is Casey Summer, a partner in the law firm for nonprofits. No long list of names for this law firm, just right to the point, we work with nonprofits. Today, we will focus on giving from a donor's view through foundations, donor advised funds, and direct giving. The pros and cons and the reasons why people form foundations and DAFs. And we will also explore how nonprofits work with these types of donors. Casey has a fine arts degree in photography from Belmont University and a law degree from Vanderbilt University, all in the Nashville, Tennessee area. Casey serves on the boards of Moxie, the Wolf Museum of Exploration and Innovation in Santa Barbara, the Common Table Foundation, and is a trustee of the College of Law. Santa Barbara and Ventura. Other highlights from her community service include serving on the Americans for the Arts Private Sector Council, chair of the Nashville Arts Coalition, chair of the American Bar Association, entertainment and sports industry, volunteer lawyers for the Arts Division. She also was chair of the Tennessee Bar Association's Entertainment and Sports Law Section. Casey lives in Santa Barbara with her husband, their six-month-old son, and their cat, where she is reconnecting with her passion for large format photography and learning to bake sourdough bread. Welcome, Casey, to The Road to Philanthropy. Hi, thank you for having me, Gary. Looking forward to the conversation today. So let's get started. So you went to college in Nashville, Tennessee. Did you grow up in the South? I did grow up in the South, originally from uh, Monterey, California, and my family picked up so my father could pursue a career in the music industry. So I spent most of my life and career in the South before making our way back to California. Ah, terrific. And now you live in California. You live in Santa Barbara, to be specific? Sunny Santa Barbara. That's That's quite a change from Nashville, right? (laughs) Indeed. The people are friendly. Uh, The environment is completely different. (laughs) So you you gave up music and, and the Nashville scene for surfing on the coast, right? That sounds about right. Although there, you know, there's a lot of music in Santa Barbara and a lot of musicians uh, tucked in here around the beaches and the mountains. Um, so we've, we found quite a welcoming uh, arts and, and thriving music community here as well. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, how you got uh, from a photography degree to a law degree and, uh, and, and that transformation for you. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, it's about arts nonprofits. So uh, as a uh, photographer, I, like many artists, I think gravitated more toward organizing and uh, away from my you know personal artistic pursuits. And as I was wrangling other artists, you know, exhibition and public engagement and uh, various you know public events and activities, there came an opportunity to uh, form a nonprofit, and I naively dove right into that. And uh, in the process, started to learn about you know how complex the world of regulation of nonprofit organizations is, how the things that we needed to do to be eligible to 
receive contributions from donors uh, and the process. And I found it really fascinating. And I thought, you know, I should go to law school and then I could do this all day long, which is pretty <laughs> funny because I had literally never met an attorney before I decided to go to law school, not one in my life. And uh, if I had, and if I had told them that very naive aspiration, I'm sure they would have said, well, that's not what lawyers do for a living. Um, but lo and behold, it has been what I've done uh, with my career. So I uh, you know, went to law school with that same desire to work with nonprofits, particularly in the arts. And uh, in the course of my time at Vanderbilt, learned about organizations called uh, Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, which uh, another one of those names, it kind of is what it says it is. Uh, essentially, it's like legal aid for the arts community and uh, worked at uh, the organization in Atlanta and ultimately started an organization uh, for Tennessee that uh, provided those services. And in the process, you know, became really immersed in that arts nonprofit sector and uh, represented you know, over 500 different arts nonprofits throughout Tennessee and really developed a passion for nonprofit law. So it, it, uh, it's funny because it came about kind of from you know, a very simple uh, dream and ended up being exactly the way it worked out, just through different paths like we all go through you know, uh, that, that I would never have predicted. So well, I, start, uh, I started my life as a banker in the finance industry. And I never would have thought I'd be, you know, running a nonprofit or raising money for a nonprofit or consulting in the nonprofit world 40 years later. So you never know right. where life's going to take you. Exactly. And and then when we decided to uh, move uh, to Santa Barbara, uh, it's been, gosh, I think four years ago now um, to be closer to have some family here. Um, thought, you know, well, I wonder if I'll be able to continue doing this work in this community. And I knew of uh, the law firm for nonprofits and my uh, now partner, um, Arthur Ryman, uh, because I had been teaching nonprofit law at uh, Vanderbilt University and, and he's done some teaching and there's a, a pretty small network throughout the country of practitioners that really focus in on nonprofit corporate governance and tax exempt issue, uh, you know, in you know, a couple hundred folks, we all know each other. Right, and um, right. so, we, you know, we got together for lunch just to, uh, you know, nerd out and talk nonprofit law. And that was a lot of fun. And then by the end of the conversation, he said, you know, we have a lot of clients in Santa Barbara, we could really use somebody up there. And, you know, now it's been three years and I'm a partner with the firm and we have a really thriving practice. And while I still have a particular personal passion for the arts, uh, one of the things I've really loved about being with the firm is that we do work with nonprofits from all parts of the sector. And it is such a fascinating and diverse uh, sector when you consider everything from environmental organizations to, you know, animal rights, to social services, to, um, you know, those, uh, the difference between those public charities, those foundations. Um, it's just such a uh, diverse and fascinating. Well, what's interesting area. is that, uh, you know, a lot of my listeners and, and so did I obviously in the past, you know, I knew about real estate lawyers, I knew about business contracts and family law and employment law, but I never thought about a firm just for nonprofits. And then when I got into the nonprofit world myself, I know of one other firm in the Bay Area that specializes yeah. in nonprofits. And now I know about you. There must yeah. be, and as you say, there are others, but I don't know who they are, but it's great. Right. Yeah, no, there, there's a handful. And, and as you can imagine, we all work really collegially together, you know, send clients back and forth, call each other with interesting, uh, you know, thorny issues. It, you know, I think of it, uh, you know, I was thinking about your podcast and the focus on 
philanthropy and uh, and this idea of trying to do you know good in the world and the impact people are trying to have and and that's one of the things that I, I love about the work we uh, we often um, say and it's true that we like to we work to help good people do good things uh, and but where it gets complex is that as we all know there are you know some bad actors in this space that that try to take advantage of the system it's a very very tiny minority of people in this space, but because of that, there's a lot of regulation, right? In how we solicit contributions and how we receive contributions. Um, we have to make sure that these organizations are making good on that sense of public trust, this idea that you know, funds that are held by a charity are really held uh, in trust for the public. They're here to do you know, good work for the public and we need to make sure that they're used properly. And so it, it all comes from that seed all of this regulation at the state and federal level uh, that, you know, gives that people like myself a, a job, right, a job, to, right. Uh, to, right? To keep people out of trouble and make sure that they can, you know, do the work that they want to do, but have the Also, I think impact. what's interesting is that when you think you've heard it all, there's always something else that's new coming up. So like this morning, I looked at the AFP uh, website, Association of Fundraising Professionals, and the Q&A that comes out daily, and, and someone posted, I've been offered a donation from the end of a political campaign. He has to give, you know, use his money up and he doesn't going to run it for office anymore. He wants to give it to our charity. Can we take that donation? You know, so you never know, you know, where things come from. It's, it's, it's you know, you know, it's funny, Gary, I just got that call. Uh, actually, I was just talking to um, a politician a couple of weeks ago about that. Someone who had termed out, you know, they can't run for office anymore. So they have these funds and they need to do something with them. And uh, so, no, you're, you're so right. I've, I've asked people, had people ask me before, you know, what do you do all day, right? You know, like I understand you work with nonprofits, <laughs> um, but what does that even mean? What does that look like? And, and I tell them most of my day is people calling up saying, you know, can we do X, you know, and, and then we look at that from all the different angles and say, okay, you know, here's how you can navigate that. Here's how you can make sure you're compliant with the law um, to accomplish that. And it's every day I, I, you know, there's, there's some kind of wrinkle, there's some kind of call that's a little different than, you know, we expected. And, um, you know, that, uh, you know, it, it's like you said, never gets boring. <laughs> well, let's move our discussion out of the foundation world and give us uh, an overview of what a foundation is and how they work. So, you know, private foundations are typically a vehicle for philanthropic giving, and um, they, they're they often associated with a particular uh, individual, a particular family, uh, or corporation. And uh, and it's, it's about uh, this uh, incentive that is being offered to uh, encourage people to make donations and support charitable activities. Um, so any type of organization that is uh, tax exempt uh, under Section 501c3 of the of the Internal Revenue Code, uh, any type of organization like that may offer donors who make contributions to the organization a tax deduction upon making a charitable contribution. Well, a private foundation is uh, a type of 501c3 organization as opposed to a public charity. So I think of private foundations as typically being those grant making vehicles, whereas the public charities are typically the organizations that are out there, uh, you know, actually kind of boots on the ground doing the work in the community. So the private foundations tend to make grants to public charities. From a legal standpoint, the difference is how they're funded. The private foundations typically by, by default, the definition of a private foundation would be one that receives most of its support from one 
or a small group of individuals, um, whereas a public charity receives contributions from lots of different individuals and entities and grant makers. Um, so those are kind of the main you know, differences between the two entities. Um, and so we see private foundations used often um, by either those, you know, corporate or um, families that uh, desire to make a charitable impact, take advantage of that tax uh, benefit and, um, and do some interesting work in the world. Is there any limit to the amount of money an individual family can give to its foundation? So, uh, well, I, I always say there's never a limit to how much you can give, um, but there is a limit to uh, the uh, the tax benefit that you can get for giving. So, um, of course, you might choose to give as much as you would like, um, but one of the main differences between private foundations and public charities is around um, the amount of charitable tax section to the donor. So, if you're giving to a private foundation, um, typically uh, only 30% of the adjusted gross income, the donor's adjusted gross income, uh, is going to be tax deductible for the donor, uh, for that gift to the private foundation. And that's for a cash gift. It's a little lower for other types of gifts. It's typically 20% for gifts of stock or other uh, types of assets. And by contrast, if you're giving to a public charity, that limit is typically either 60 or 50% of your adjusted gross income. Um, now, we've seen a lot of interesting things in recent years with the pandemic. One of the incentives that, that Congress offered was raising that limit for public charities up to 100%. So we've seen a lot of donors uh, really trying to maximize their giving. And uh, that was, we, we were uh, busy last week uh, advising folks uh, before year end on how to take advantage of some of those opportunities. But in a typical year, that's about the difference that you're looking at. Uh, what is the biggest challenge of working with people who start a foundation or run a foundation? Well, you know, I would say the the first, uh, I don't know if I would call it a challenge, but the first, you know, sort of um, barrier that, that we want to surmount in, in working with someone who's looking to start a private foundation uh, is to make sure that that's the right fit for, for them and for their, for their giving. And what I mean by that is um, that, you know, again, while we work with hundreds of private foundations, it's a really useful and important vehicle uh, when it's the right fit. It's not the right fit for every, uh, every philanthropist. And so, uh, I think that when we find challenges is when um, perhaps people have kind of jumped in and a foundation is set up and then now they're realizing, oh, perhaps this wasn't um, the best fit for us. So some of the, you know, what I would think of as kind of pros and cons there, uh, what we talk people through when they're trying to decide whether or not to set up a private foundation um, is, you know, do they, how do they envision their role in their philanthropic endeavor. So how hands-on do they want to be? How long do they want this to exist? You know, one of the great advantages of a private foundation is it exists in perpetuity, just like any other corporation. Um, it can outlive, uh, you know, the, the founders. It can engage unlimited future generations, right? So it's something that could live on um, for, for centuries and really create a legacy of family giving. So that's very important to some of our clients. Uh, for other clients, not at all, right? Other clients see, you know, a shorter horizon for their philanthropy. They want to kind of do work now. They want to distribute um, their wealth on a much shorter timeline. And so it may, you know, it may not be worth it to them to go through the process of setting up this new 
entity and then having, there's, there's certainly plenty of administrative paperwork, annual filings, you know, things that you have to go through to maintain the private foundation, just like any other corporation, although a little more so for a private foundation, because they are subject to additional restriction and regulation. So, so that's often, you know, some of the big conversations we have is what are your, what are your goals? How much control do you want? Uh, how involved does, you know, your family want to be or not in the giving? How long do you want it to last? Do you, will you actually employ staff or is it a more, um, you know, is it more that you're meeting once or twice a year to make a few recommendations on grants? You know, how, kind of how engaged involved is this uh, philanthropy? And I've worked with large foundations and small foundations, and people sometimes don't understand that all foundations are not a billion dollars or $500 million. There's a lot of foundations that are just 25 and $50 million, right. and that money is given away in, in both entities the same way. Absolutely. And, and, and for better or worse, they're subject to all the same restrictions and regulations too. You know, so sometimes people say, oh, no, 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 you know, we're just a small family foundation. Surely that doesn't apply to us. And I have to say, well, unfortunately it, it does, you know, the, the IRS, the state regulators um, will treat that organization exactly the same. And so you need to make sure that you have sufficient administrative systems in place, you know, for um, a grant making process for proper financial Record. Is, there, is there a dollar amount uh, on the low end of starting a foundation that you would recommend to consider a foundation after you have X dollars to give away or whatever? Yeah, I, usually our rule of thumb is somewhere around two million, and that's going to vary. You know, we've set up foundations for smaller amounts. Um, most of our clients probably have larger amounts, uh, but that would be a client who, uh, you know, have a clear sense of. The administration involved and and really desire to have that hands-on role and control um, and sometimes also foundations are funded in waves as well you know based on on someone's you know wealth events and their life and so it may start uh, fairly small but we know that upon the passing of the founder for example the foundation is going to grow a good bit so that might be another factor where we might set up a foundation for a smaller amount today so that they can get some grant making systems in place and give that initial generation the opportunity to maybe start working with some of the other generations during their life on developing grant making strategies and grant making processes, knowing that there will be, you know, additional infusions of capital in the future. And then that, that you know, guidance can live on. So, um, so there's never sort of a hard and fast, you know, rule, of course, with these things. Um, but that's often what we what we advise. We've heard a lot lately about donor advised funds, uh, a lot of promotion about them, and they're called DAF for short. Uh, how do they differ from family foundations? Yeah, so DAFs are really interesting and, and have been, um, you know, really increasing in popularity, like you were mentioning, Gary. Uh, and I see this as, as a, a common alternative. The main difference between donor advice fund or DAF and a private foundation is that it's not a separate legal entity. So a DAF is really, it's just like it, it's described a fund. It is just a fund. It's an account that is housed at an existing organization, a public charity. Typically those are community foundations, although in Increasingly commonly, we're seeing um, donor advice funds held by uh, a charity operated by a major financial institution. And um, but they are really useful for a lot of donors. And the biggest advantage being that the donor can receive that tax deduction immediately when they make the contribution to the DAF. So when the when the funds are put in, just like with the private foundation. Um, however, uh, they can take advantage of that higher uh, higher deductibility percentage uh, because the DAFs are held by public charities. 
And then the donor really can be fairly hands-off. So this is a donor who doesn't want to engage in the direct administration. Uh, they're not expecting to have staff. They're not going to be doing the kind of grant making where they're, you know, making site visits and really uh, engaged in, in that way. Often they're simply making recommendations. Um, while it can be done on an ongoing basis, often I see with DAS, it's done maybe once or twice a year for charities that they would like to give to, and they make that recommendation to the operator of the DAF, and then the DAF takes care of all the paperwork. You know, they do the grant making, they'll have grant agreements, they vet the charities, they make sure they're appropriate recipients, um, and so they do that legwork. So it can reduce the overhead if you were building those systems from, you know, from scratch. So I find that's really a ideal for families that are saying, you know, we, we kind of know what we want to do with our charitable giving. We just want to do it efficiently. We want to take advantage of that tax bit of uh, the tax deduction. Um, and, and that's it, right? You know, we're not looking to, uh, to have more of this, you know, multi-generational family legacy, not looking to be as uh, hands-on, not looking to have, say, family members or other people as staff of the organization. Uh, this is, you know, this is really just uh, a vehicle for our charitable giving. You are listening to The Road to Philanthropy. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. On the giving side, I know foundations are required to give 5% of their assets away every year as gifts. What yeah. about a DAF? How does that work there? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, and actually one that is uh, the subject of some controversy right now uh, because um, DAFs do not have a minimum contribution. So as you said, yes, private foundations, that is one of the main restrictions in order to ensure that the funds are actually distributed to charity, they must give 5% uh, of the assets uh, out each year in grant making. DAFs don't have that same requirement. And so um, theoretically, and, and in practice, uh, there are some that just languish where the funds sit there. And Congress recently has gotten very interested in this issue uh, because as DAFs are increasing in popularity, we have many, many, uh, actually you know, billions of dollars that are in donor advised funds, and there is no uh, timeline or requirement that those funds ever actually be granted out to charity. And so the thinking is that if, if Congress were to introduce some type of similar minimum distribution requirement for those donor advised funds, it really could be quite a wonderful um, infusion of cash into uh, the nonprofit sector, into those charities um, that, that are doing work. So there uh, have been a couple different um, bills and proposals that are moving through Congress. Uh, it's one of those things that sounds so simple in practice of, uh, you know, let's just institute a, <laughs> a minimum distribution requirement, right? But then you get into the detail and you say, okay, well, how does that actually work? What is the amount? Does it apply to existing DAFs? Is it only the new DAFs? What happens if they don't do it? How many years do they have to make these, uh, you know, these contributions? So, of course, like everything, um, the regulation gets quite detailed and complex, and um, and there's a lot of different schools of thoughts of how to approach that. Um, but it is something we are starting to advise clients uh, that it may be coming. Um, there also are some ways that donor advice funds are used that can um, circumvent some of the limitations of private foundations, and Congress is looking at closing some of those loopholes, um, too. So we're expecting there to be a lot more regulation of donor advice funds in the next few years, but of course, without that crystal ball, none of us know, you know, how or when Congress will take any action on. Yeah, I know from a, a nonprofit side, uh, when I advise my nonprofit clients, and when I ran a nonprofit, I could go and look at uh, 
GuideStar or uh, uh, Charity, Charity Navigator and look up who the foundations were and look at their 990s, their tax returns, to see who they gave money to. In the DAF world, that's kind of all secret, isn't it? Completely. And that's another one of the major criticisms, you know, it's a lack of transparency. You're so right. When you, you know, with a private foundation, you can see, you know, who are the directors of this organization? What did they give to last last year? What are the amounts? Uh, what are their total holdings? You know, what might be uh, and, and, and a lot of that is really helpful information for the grant seeker, because then you can make an appropriate request. You can see, oh, you know, this family has a passion for a cause that's very similar to what I'm doing. And I see, you know, that they like to make this type of gift and I might be able to bring them a very exciting uh, proposal, something that they'd really love to, you know, to receive. Uh, in the donor advice fund world, um, you will not even know that fund exists, uh, much less what its focus is, much less what its giving history is. So there's, you know, it, it's very opaque. You would have no way of, of targeting that. Again, you could see how for some donors that might be an advantage for them, that that privacy and anonymity. Um, although, again, there are some ways to have anonymity with private foundations, but um, you're still going to have transparency regarding the giving. So even if the people are not, uh, you know, as um, public, uh, the giving, the giving, you know, typically is. Um, so, yeah, depending on your perspective, you see that as either, I think, a pro or a con of, uh, you know, private foundations versus right. donor advice funds. Well, let's move in a, a little different direction for a moment and talk about your career a little bit more. Most successful people speak about having a mentor or mentors in their lives that have a great impact on, on where they go and what they do. Uh, do you have any mentors in your background? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, as, as you uh, indicate, I think that is such a critical, um, critical step along the way. And I think you know, the, the first one actually that came to mind for me um, was the woman who ran uh, the uh, Georgia Lawyers for the Arts, the organization that I interned with while I was in law school, mm-hmm. um, that was a you know model for the organization that we founded uh, in Tennessee, the Tennessee Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. And her name was Lisa Moore, and uh, we're still friends, and uh, she's still you know still a mentor to me, but uh, we speak a little less often now. But the thing that that I think Lisa did. Uh, aside from, you know, being that sounding board and offering guidance is that she immediately believed I could do it. And so, you know, having someone else reflect back to you, um, your capabilities and possibilities made uh, it feel, it feel real immediately, right? Made it feel that, you know, the fact that she didn't think I was crazy to start a new organization and um, right out of law school and, you know, that'd be my full-time job from day one and um, felt that that was possible um, for me, I think made it become a real possibility in my mind. And it, it almost felt like a foregone conclusion, right? Because she'd say, oh, how's it coming? You know, what, what's your, you know, when are you, when are you getting started? You know, what's the, so it kind of moved from, can I do this to um, we're doing it. And then, and then it's just about logistics, right? Once you, uh, once you commit to doing something. Um, so I think those yeah, I think that's something that, you know, a really wonderful mentor um, can give you is to reflect back to you uh, a, a version of yourself, maybe that you haven't seen yet or realized is possible yet. That's great. You're involved, obviously, as a nonprofit consultant, as a lawyer to a lot of nonprofits. Are you yourself involved in any nonprofits yourself on the board or uh, in, in a giving way? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I, I love serving on boards of nonprofits. I, um, uh, 
this is kind of a common joke with my partner that I probably serve on too many boards, uh, but I uh, I really do enjoy that role. I think being a, a board member of a nonprofit is such a unique and unusual uh, position in that you're a volunteer. So you're there, you know, purely out of a passion for the uh, the purpose and a desire to make a difference and to contribute. But you also have very serious, you know, legal and fiduciary responsibilities because you're shepherding this organization um, through its life. And uh, <coughs> since um, moving to California, I've had the opportunity to get involved with several wonderful organizations. Um, right now, I'm serving on the board of uh, the MOXIE, which is the Museum of Exploration and Innovation here in Santa Barbara. Uh, not just a children's museum, it's for people of all ages, and uh, it's it's our STEAM, you know, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math uh, museum. Uh, so uh, if any of you or your listeners are in Santa Barbara, come by the MOXIE, it's right down by the waterfront. Um, spectacular facility, uh, rooftop, and you'll uh, you'll learn new things. I think you'll reconnect with that um, curiosity that we all have as a child. And uh, that's been uh, really rewarding. It's also just a tremendously run organization. And being on the board of it during the pandemic was uh, really fascinating because as uh, as you've you know probably talked about before some on, on the show, uh, our venues were hit, you know, so hard during the pandemic. Those, right. and there were, you know, some responses with the shuttered venue operators grant and things like that. Um, but a, a museum can't be a museum during a pandemic, right? And so that was something that we sort of posed. Well, well, how how can we do that? How can we still, you know, achieve our purpose? Uh, and I thought that the staff just came up with really innovative ways from, you know, virtual camps and different kinds of experiences, um, online, outdoors, etc. Um, to stay really active and connected with the community um, during that time. So it actually has been a really um, great time of growth for a young museum in a way that we might not have expected. And the other board that I serve on uh, right now that that um, also has been really interesting in the pandemic uh, is actually the Colleges of Law here in Santa Barbara and Ventura. It's a very different type of organization, you know, more formal board of trustees um, for this educational institution. Um, but that's another you know, sector of the nonprofits that uh, has had a really challenging time navigating um, how to take good care of its students during the pandemic and ensure uh, a wonderful learning opportunity for them, you know, while caring for their safety. Um, that organization also is one that really prides innovation. Uh, it's actually innovating in the form of delivery of, of law, legal education in general. It's going for uh, pre-pandemic even. It had started a hybrid, uh, the first in the country accredited uh, hybrid law degree that's part online and part in person. Um, so it's already an innovator. And I think because of that, with both Moxie and Colleges of Law, because that's the way that these organizations approach what they do every day anyway, they fared really well during the pandemic. Whereas I think some of our organizations that were a little more traditional and thought they might, you know, kind of stick their head in the sand and wait it out, uh, looked up a year later and were really struggling. So, um, and I think I think what I have seen during the pandemic is exactly uh, you know aligns with what you just said, is that the typical bricks and mortar nonprofit that you think about, you know, uh, has expanded because of uh, COVID. And we're doing a lot more online. A lot more people are offering courses and lectures and programs. Even the LA Chamber Orchestra, which I'm involved with, just as a, uh, I don't, I'm on the board. I'm a donor, and I, I go to the concerts. They had you know online 
uh, you know, concerts, uh, which is a little different than being there in person, but they tried to find other ways to deliver their services. Uh, so very innovative yeah. uh, time for people. Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been really fascinating to watch. And, uh, you know, with our, our client base, you know, at any given time, we're working with, you know, a couple hundred organizations actively. We've got literally, you know, over 2,500 that are past clients or, or you know, current clients at various times. And, and so, you know, one of the first things we did when the pandemic hit is just picked up the phone and checked in with a lot of them and asked, you know, how are you doing? How can we be helpful? Not from a legal standpoint, you know, just how can we be there for you? And it was really interesting to see how some of them uh, really took this as that moment to finally, uh, you know, do that that type of new programming they'd always wanted to do, um, or to move out of their comfort zone, and are really thriving as a result. Um, And/or their uh, their services are more needed than they've ever been. You know, for many of our social service clients, um, so many of them are growing, starting new programs, and it, it's really been quite. A thriving time for them, despite, you know, very difficult circumstances. Uh, so that was fascinating. You know, we really weren't sure what to expect. Well, certainly when, when COVID hit in March of 2020 and people started to see what was going on, I probably got calls from 10 or 15 nonprofits who I give money to or have given money. Are you okay? Are you still healthy? We want to make uh-huh. sure you're okay. What they're really saying is we want to make sure you write a check this year. <laughs> I understand that. Um, there's a new book that was out last year uh, uh, called The Philanthropy Revolution by Lisa Greer. I don't know if you've met her or read the book yet. I will send you a, a, a copy. I, I think you'll really be, uh, it's from a donor's perspective. She was uh, uh, just a, a regular person raising her family, whatever, and her husband and her just going along, living life. And then the company went public that her husband was part of. All of a sudden they were mega millionaires and they were giving money away. And she talked about how people approached her, how they wanted to have lunches, how they didn't know who they were, and then they did know who they were and all that sort of, and then from a donor's standpoint, how you view things. And as we just finished the year end and we get, you know, thousands of emails every day from charities asking for our year end gifts. Um, so I'm saying, thank you for your gift last year. And you think I never made a gift to you in my life. And you're just asking right. for a gift again, you know, right. so uh, the online giving is a very interesting uh, uh, place to be also in, in the coming years. Yeah, it, it is. And uh, that is uh, one of the uh, areas we've been doing a lot of advising lately is around online giving, both uh, working with platforms that are trying to create, you know, new modes of online giving, um, whether they're, you know, working with um, celebrities or uh, social media or, you know, different kinds of engagement and engaging right. different audiences. It's really fascinating. Uh, it is a super heavily regulated area. And again, rightly so, right? Because anyone can go out there and say, you know, I'm soliciting contributions for, uh, you know, XYZ charity. And so, of course, we need to make sure that those funds will actually make it to the charity. And as a donor, I need to understand if I give through that platform, you know, is uh, 100% going to the charity is 10% going to the charity, which I can, you know, I won't, I won't name names, but there are sites that about 10 to 20% is what actually gets to the charity. Oh, you know, awesome. donors may not know that. And so how do we, uh, you know, how do we find that balance between, you know, not so much regulation that we don't have these new platforms coming up because I think they are very well-intentioned and they're engaging a lot of new donors, which is exciting. Um, but on the flip side, again, there's a lot of regulation and it's at the state level. So if you want it to be, 
a national website, you know, we're looking at compliance and, uh, you know, all the states are the, the 39 that regulate charitable giving. And so, um, and they're, and they're very different, you know, they take different approaches. So um, they're, they're fascinating cases. We've enjoyed working with uh, several of those new, you know, platforms and helping them figure out how to comply coast to coast and um, be transparent with their donors and good stewards of the funds. Uh, and yet, you know, get an effective platform launched, you know, officially. My, my nonprofit listeners, a lot of people on the event side of things, you know, look at raffles and uh, poker tournaments these days, and they're highly regulated and people need to talk to their attorney and not just um, the, uh, the attorney on their board who happens to deal in real estate. You know, they really know what's going on. Right. There. Yeah, no, I know the number of times I've heard people say, well, wait, that's no big deal. You know, it's just a raffle or just this. And I say, well, let me introduce you to the California Attorney General's office who does think it's a big deal. And uh, let's start talking about how to plan for that successful event. Uh, Right. Yeah. All the any kind of gambling related activity. That's another big one. And we're seeing also those combined with online. Right. So we want to do some kind of online, you know, prize or lottery, uh, et cetera. And so. Um, boy, those are fun. <laughs> so, you know, we, we've, we've worked with those, some of those clients and they, they keep the whole team busy um, for sure, helping them navigate both the gaming laws and the, the charity laws, uh, which there's some overlap and variation between the two. So they're, uh, they're, they're interesting. And, but we always try to, you know, we don't want to discourage that space either, because like I said, I do think there's great things happening there and they're connecting with a whole you know, new model of giving, you know, I think we're, you know, we've been talking about private foundations this morning and uh, that's a very traditional giving model and it works really well for a lot of organizations. Um, But even with our private foundation clients, we're seeing new questions about, you know, how can we give differently? How can we make, um, you know, uh, program related investments? How can we be more sort of thoughtful in how we're giving and using our funds and how can we do more? Uh, And so I, I do love people you know, really trying to think about, um, you know, what is the framework provided by the law, but how can we maximize that to get more people giving and more dollars, you know, out there in the hands of charities doing good work. So it's it's really interesting stuff for us. We, we love thinking through the issues. One of the other challenges I think uh, that is coming up more and more lately is the impact of uh, donor requests on uh, organizations they make gifts to, you know, how mm-hmm. much control a donor wants to have uh, or is not allowed to have. And there was recently a situation in L.A. where there was a uh, a naming gift of five million dollars to an entity. And within a year, uh, the entity gave back the money because the donor were making too many demands on the nonprofit. Uh, and it's a very interesting challenge in that area. <laughs> yeah, we've been um, drafting a lot of gift acceptance policies lately for nonprofits. And usually it comes from, uh, you know, and that's a very you know, big public one. Uh, but usually it, it it comes even with some of these smaller gifts where, you know, the organization accepts the gift and doesn't really think through the strings attached and how they're going to make good on that. Um, or maybe the gift is for such a restricted purpose, but it's not really enough money to fund that purpose. And, and that, that the organization would be better off saying, you know, thank you, but no, thank you. You know, we, right. this is not um, the right gift for us. And uh, we also draft a lot of gift agreements as well, both for organizations and donors. And it's a, it's a fine balance, you know, um, back at the turn of the century, not 2000, but the turn of the 19th, uh, the, the 20th century in the early 1900s, there was a restricted fund set up at Jewish family and children's services in San Francisco, uh, to establish a fund that would pay for Jewish kids that wanted to become cobblers and make <laughs> Jews. And eventually, obviously Jewish 
kids did not want to become cobblers or tailors. They wanted to become lawyers and doctors and the fund wasn't being used. And the only way the charity could do anything different with the money was go to the attorney general and file the paperwork to request yeah. that they could release those funds and do other things with it. Yeah, absolutely. That's been another really common uh, question that we got, particularly toward the middle of the pandemic. Uh, we're, you know, trying to understand maybe for the first time organizations were looking hard again at some of those restricted funds that they've had sitting on their books and saying, well, how can we use this? You know, this is that rainy day, right, that we've all been waiting for. Can we use some of these restricted funds? How? Um, and we've been guiding a lot of organizations through the process of either some are fortunate and can go back to the donor and that's easy enough and we can you know, draft a simple agreement there. Easy peasy. Many of them are not so easy, like the example you gave, right? Where it's hundreds of years old, there's you know a lot of other wrinkles involved and we've got to get the AG involved and um, often the court involved and uh, it's, it's a process. Um, but it, you know, but it's a worthwhile one. And uh, so, yeah, we've been doing a lot of looking at endowment language, restricted gifts, and trying to really ascertain what is the restriction and how can we use it? How can we modify it? Well, we won't make get into this one now. I have two last questions for you, but I know there's a lot of issues about naming and uh, how is it in perpetuity or limited and things like that. So we'll do that next time we talk. Right. Uh, absolutely. It sounds like restricted but, gifts could be a whole lot. <laughs> let me ask you one, one last uh, two questions. Uh, one, <laughs> Uh, when you're not working on nonprofits, what do you like to do? <laughs> well, uh, these days I have a 20 month old. So uh, uh, most of it uh, involves uh, chasing him around. He loves books, music, and uh, baseball. So we're having a lot of fun. Um, seems to be taken after mama in that respect so far. We spend a lot of time reading, listening to music, and running around the yard. Uh, but we also are very involved in the arts here in Santa Barbara as well. It really is an incredible thriving yeah. arts community. I will say that I did bring my daughter to her first baseball game when she was on my back in a backpack. And now she's 29 years old and we're still going to baseball games together constantly, so. Oh, I love that, I love that. Yeah, we're hoping to uh, instill a similar tradition. One of his first words actually was baseball. And, uh, and now he refers to the baseball men's that we see play uh, when we uh, uh, go down by East Beach. So. I, I learned a lot today about foundations and, and DAFs, but I learned a lot about kids and baseball. So what a deal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at paintedrock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.